Pakistan. Unprecedented floods have left a third of the country underwater. Roads, homes and crops have been washed away, villages submerged and millions of people left homeless. Repairing the destruction will cost Pakistan's struggling economy some $10 billion. The country says it can't do it alone in a volatile region surrounded by the geopolitics of eastern and western powers and a long-time hostile relationship with its neighbour India, how can Pakistan respond? I'm James Bayes in New York. Pakistan's top diplomat, Foreign Minister Bilal Bhutto Zadari, is just 34 years old. The role the son of the late Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto plays may be crucial in dealing with the challenges ahead. Will he succeed? I caught up with him as he met global leaders at the 77th session of the UN General Assembly. Pakistan's Foreign Minister Bilal Bhutto Zadari talks to Al Jazeera. Bilal Bhutto Zadari, the Foreign Minister of Pakistan and the leader of the Pakistan People's Party, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Now, I want to discuss lots of issues about Pakistan and the world, but it would be wrong for me to start anywhere else other than the flooding in your country. One of the worst humanitarian disasters that Pakistan has faced, a third of the country underwater. The UN Secretary General who visited said it was a monsoon on steroids and we're now hearing about waterborne diseases. How is your country coping? So we are a country that is used to floods, that is used to monsoons, but this is something else altogether. It's uh, on an apocalyptic scale. Um, we had uh, a mo the monster monsoon on steroids that lasted from mid-June to the end of August. And when the rain stopped, a 100-kilometer lake formed in the middle of my country that could be seen from space that it's slowly making its way uh, towards the ocean. As you mentioned, a third of my country, this uh, landmass was underwater. One in seven people, 33 million people, more than uh, the size of the United Kingdom, uh, affected. And this is uh, on a scale uh, that we have never, ever seen before. So it's overwhelming insofar as the, 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 the climate catastrophe and the floods itself it's, uh, is concerned. But then, as you mentioned, uh, there's the uh, health issues, waterborne diseases spreading like a, an epidemic. Then given that our crops have been uh, destroyed, more than a four million acres of crops, standing crop uh, destroyed from these floods, we fear food insecurity issues. And you, as you must be aware, uh, we had just, while the rains were still ongoing, concluded our agreement with the IMF. Uh, and we're looking forward uh, to a, a breath of in, economic, in difficult economic times. Now, that, that, that entire arrangement is based on figures and estimates that have also been washed away. Uh, by the floods. This is truly and utterly uh, an overwhelming climate catastrophe. What are going to be the long-term effects? Because you say so many people rely on the land, they rely on their livestock, which is dead. Is there the possibility? I've seen people speculating there could be a famine. I, I don't want to use the word uh, a famine, but I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in a difficult uh, situation. I mean, 33 million people, 16 million of which are children, 600,000 plus are pregnant women that are going to go uh, into labor. Uh, and the issue of uh, disease is a serious threat, on the health side is a serious threat, and we anyway had 
uh, food insecurity issues within the global context following COVID and Ukraine and all those other things. Uh, and this uh, is, is an incredibly difficult uh, blow. You were recently meeting world leaders at the UN General Assembly in New York. How does this influence your thinking on climate change? And how do you get them to stop going from, go from just words about climate change to immediate action? Uh, I, I mean, this sort of apocalyptic scale events is, uh, sort of has evidence that we must now work towards adaptation. And that's sort of the, the opportunity that I want to take out of this crisis, is now the heavy investment that we're going to have to do in rehabilitation and reconstruction. We would like to do in a greener way when we build back, uh, to do so in a greener manner that's climate uh, resilient and going forward. One of the places hit bad was your own home province of Sindh. Can I ask you, use that perhaps as an example, there were floods there in 2010. Yeah. With hindsight, do you think enough has been done your party was, had been in charge there for a long time. Was enough done? Some have said to me that some of the measures that were supposed to be put in place didn't actually happen because of corruption. Oh, but that's absolutely untrue. Um, I'd actually like to know who these some are. Corruption is an issue, it, it, it's there, but it's nothing, as in it's the, it doesn't have anything to do with the impact uh, of this tragedy. There is. Uh, no infrastructure, uh, n nothing that could have been in place. Okay, I just imagine where one would build a dam the size of 20 Terbela dams and at what point to, to capture uh, floods descending uh, from the skies. Uh, this is truly uh, and utterly a new phenomenon. And what we discovered having come through this is it's not only us, but the insta international institutions, the international financial institution, all this talk about climate, climate finance, et cetera, et cetera. The funds aren't there. The institutional infrastructure isn't there to address a catastrophe of this scale. And you've got also a global food crisis a global fuel crisis. You mentioned that package from the IMF, $7 billion. What do you need now from, so those the, seven, from the international I, I institutions? Think, I think that seven was the sort of total, and for this tranche, it was one point something. I may be wrong. I'll ask the finance but minister. But what, what do you need? But so as far as the international finance institutions are concerned, not only the IMF and the World Bank uh, will have to work with them for our reconstruction and rehabilitation phase. As far as our loans are concerned, our now, the issues are concerned, while we're dealing with this specific tragedy, and because we don't have the fiscal space and we need to make the finances available for the rescue and relief uh, a portion of uh, the, 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 this catastrophe that we're still on, uh, in the middle of, and then once the water sus, uh, subsides, the re reconstruction and, and rehabilitation phase, so we'd need to reschedule when we'd pay those uh, debts. Foreign Minister, you're pretty young to have this job. You just turned 34, um, but you come from a family steeped in Pakistan politics. Your grandfather, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, was elected Prime Minister in the 1970s, then ousted in a military coup and executed. Your father, Asif Ali Zadari, was the President of Pakistan. And I think most people know your mother, Benazir Bhutto, the first woman to lead a democratically elected government in an Islamic country. She served twice as Prime Minister, but on her return to Pakistan in 2007, she was assassinated. Why did you two decide to go into politics? Um, my mother used to often say that she didn't choose this life, it chose her. And I 
like to say the same. But I have to ask you this question. The current Prime Minister, you're in a coalition government, Shabazz Sharif is the brother of the former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, whose own daughter Maryam is also a political figure. Some might say these are dynasties absolutely. and it's a country of 200 million, more than 200 million people. Is that right? No, absolutely. It's a country of 200 million people and I can't speak for uh, the Sharif says in, on this front that they'll answer themselves, but yeah. from our perspective, um, as in as we just discussed, I wouldn't want to be in this position uh, in that sense, as in I would have much preferred that uh, my mother had lived uh, and been able to continue in the work that she was doing so well. Unfortunately, the way that Pakistani politics works is, uh, or has worked, uh, is that uh, such popular leaders have been targeted in attempts to undermine uh, our democracy, and that has resulted uh, in people like me uh, taking uh, these, uh, taking this role. But of course, the fundamental uh, importance is that we believe uh, in, uh, the, uh, in, in democracy and the people's right to choose. So whoever wants to get involved in this life actually has to put themselves forth uh, before the public, and if they are elected, uh, and then, uh, then they get the chance to serve. I mean, it is interesting, though. On a recent edition of this program, I was speaking to the president of Kenya, the new president of Kenya, Kenya William Ruto, who used to sell chickens at the roadside and only got his first pair of shoes at the age of 15. And in Pakistan, if you look at the history of Pakistan, the political class seemed to always come from the upper class. Why is that? So, as far as that's concerned, I'd have to... Um, I disagree. Uh, we've had a, a prime minister, Mr. Raja Pervez Ashraf, uh, from my party as well, and he started his, his political career as a political worker of the Pakistan People's Party and worked his way up uh, as prime minister uh, of Pakistan. So that too is possible within the Pakistani context. You've been in a coalition government since April when the previous Prime Minister Imran Khan was toppled in a vote of no confidence uh, in Parliament. Um, he alleges foreign involvement, a plot involving the US. Yes. What's your view on that? I think it's just outrageous and ridiculous, conspiratorial. Um, the results of the first time in Pakistan's history, and you having covered Pakistan so extensively and being so aware uh, of our history, will know this, that every single prime minister in the history of Pakistan, other than Mr. Imran Khan, has been removed through an undemocratic process. We've had prime ministers hung. We've had prime ministers exiled. We've had prime ministers uh, assassinated in other uh, attacks. Mr. Khan is the first prime minister in the history of Pakistan that has been democratically removed through a vote of no confidence. So I believe that despite our turbulent history, this is actually uh, a significant achievement. Of course, Mr. Khan can't say that. He can't say that because of his own incompetence, uh, he lost the support of his allies. So he's come up with this convoluted uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, I think that one can play uh, all one wants uh, to sentiments and uh, uh, give such sorts of um, conspiratorial statements, but the facts also matter to the voters who lived 
the four years of Mr. Imran Khan's government, where our democratic rights were reversed, our media freedoms were reversed, our human rights were reversed, our economic rights were reversed, the economic situation and difficulties that our people are facing today, while severe and grave, they all remember that they didn't come about in the last four months. It happened over the course of the next, of the over the last four years. So we can play all the cards that he wants, uh, but at the end of the day, I have faith in the people of Pakistan. He too should have faith in the people of Pakistan, and he should cease and desist from his attempts uh, of trying to influence in an undemocratic way uh, the political process in Pakistan. Let me ask you about your own political fortunes, because you're in a coalition, uh, and you are the junior partner in the coalition. There are elections next year. How do you differentiate yourself so in, in that context? Can I actually be totally honest, at this point in time, given what we're facing, I mean, the devastation and the scale of the, uh, the tragedy of the floods, it doesn't matter what your political banner is. At the moment, we're all just uh, citizens of Pakistan. So you'd be happy to continue this coalition next year, maybe? Uh, we're, we're, the, we're, we're, we're in the coalition for now and for, for the government. Obviously, when it comes to elections, we'll each be running uh, from our own political parties. Uh, but. Uh, this is not the time for hyper-partisan political politics. This is the time for us to come together when literally a third of our country is underwater. Uh, and I'm doing that. Uh, Mr. Sharif is doing that. It's about time Mr. Khan did the same. Many commentators who look back at 2018 when Imran Khan came to power said he did so because of the backing of the military. And I'm not, not, it's not just commentators. Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister and the brother of the, um, the uh, existing prime minister, said that. Do you think the military plays an outsized role in Pakistani politics? Pakistan's, you smile when I ask I that. smile because anybody, as yourself, is aware of Pakistan's history knows that we've had a turbulent uh, history when it comes to democracy and civilian supremacy. And as far as the 2018 uh, elections are concerned, um, free and fair elections in Pakistan are hard to come by, but 2018's general elections were particularly uh, unfair uh, and manipulated in Mr. Khan's favor. And then he continued in power uh, to use uh, institutions that should be apolitical and have no role. You uh, in to the military. Well, Mr. Khan himself says that he used to use the intelligence agencies to make his allies turn up in parliament and pass bills. I mean, that's why it was all the more important for us who believe in democracy in Pakistan, that we had to remove uh, this individual that was undermining the progress that we had made between 2007 and 2018, uh, where we saw the first peaceful transfer of power from one government to the other. We saw devolution of power to the provinces and from individuals to parliament. We saw an expansion of media freedoms, an expansion of human rights. And what we saw as soon as Mr. Khan came in is a contraction of democratic rights, of human rights, of media freedoms. Uh, and he was, his, his conduct and his, then and his conduct now is a fundamental threat to Pakistan's fragile democracy. As foreign minister, how difficult is it for you to navigate superpower politics? Now, we have China, which is best friends with Pakistan, massive investments, you're tied into that Belt and Road initiative. You have a complicated relationship with the US, perhaps it's improving a little bit, but it's been difficult in the past. And then there's Russia, and 
that's seen by many in the West currently as a pariah nation, and yet you're still talking about that gas pipeline. How difficult is it to balance all this? I think that, first of all, uh, uh, these bigger countries need to get used to the fact that smaller or what they deem as smaller developing countries can't be held hostage uh, to the great games that are going on. And I think we must all ask ourselves what, uh, what history will write of this period. That we were at a point in human history where we are facing various existential threats like we've never seen before. We went through a once in a hundred year pandemic, an existential threat to us we are going through uh, the climate uh, crisis that, at least for us in Pakistan, has reached the point where it's an existential threat. And I think we can all agree there's no way uh, we will be able to combat at least the issue of climate change without all the countries you just mentioned working uh, together. But as you know, the great powers right now are probably more divided than any time this century. Let me ask you about the issue that's dominating global politics. What is your view of Russia's actions in Ukraine? My answer to the last question is my answer to this question as well. I do not believe that this is a time uh, for these sorts of conflicts, for an increase in tensions, whatever the reasons or perceived justifications are. Uh, this is a time for us to come together to resolve uh, far more important issues and the path uh, to peace is through dialogue and diplomacy and I would uh, advocate, appeal to the parties involved to pursue uh, dialogue and peace. With respect, Foreign Minister, that sounds a little bit like you were evading the question. So let me ask you these specific points. The UN Secretary General says it was an invasion, clearly a violation of the UN Charter. Do you agree? So I don't think I'm avoiding the question. I think I'm entitled to my own position. Well, and I think that's exactly the attitude in the West at the moment, actually, is if you don't take our position and if you don't speak our language, uh, then you're not taking the position. But I'm just asking you some position. specific points about, I, 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 about I the... Please, was please, it an invasion? Please feel free to yeah. ask me specific points. Uh, but my position is that my country, and I'm foreign minister of, of my country, so therefore I have to reflect my country's position, is that we're not taking sides in this conflict. We've just got out of Afghanistan and literally like a month or a few months before this conflict broke out, uh, the fall of Kabul happened. We're sick and tired after 20 years of war and conflict and we saw at the end of that how ultimately no matter what people thought, without asking us, without asking the Afghans, dialogue was started, dialogue happened and whether you like it or not, uh, a conclusion was reached and we suffered in that conflict, not only in the form of 80,000 Pakistani lives that were lost, my mother lost her own life, and now we've washed our hands of the whole situation and, uh, and are moving I want on. to ask you about so, Afghanistan so all, in I'm a say, all I'm saying is that um, what's happening uh, in the Ukraine right now, which from the uh, Russians have their own perspective, the West has their own perspective, whichever perspective you hold, this is surely not the appropriate time to be starting another world war. But the UN Secretary General is a neutral arbiter. He has the charter of the UN and he says it's been violated. We've got a UN oh, oh, Commission of Inquiry oh, as as, and an International as, Criminal as, Court as, Prosecutor who says there have been war as crimes. As far as the UN Charter is concerned and international law is concerned and UN resolutions are concerned, I completely and utterly support them. I would just like, be it the Secretary General, be it the United States, be it everybody else involved in this conflict, that um, they had the same line uh, when it came to 
the issue of Kashmir. Because over there, international law has been violated, UN Security Council resolutions uh, have been violated, a whole host of international organizations are exp um, emphasizing the deep violations of human rights. Muslims, not only within uh, the Kashmir Valley, but all across India, the largest minority on Earth, are being persecuted. So um, if we are expected uh, to take uh, positions on one issue, at least from the major stakeholders, uh, there should be uh, a similar uh, policy uh, all the time, and therefore you'd, it would be understandable to expect everyone to take the same, uh, take uh, a consistent policy in a similar way. But if that's not happening, please allow us to focus on our own issues, our own problems. There's far too much devastation happening in Pakistan right now for me to be worried or uh, able to uh, impact the devastation that is surely happening in Ukraine and elsewhere. And obviously there's big problems across the border in Afghanistan. The Taliban during the talks in Doha said that they were going to come up with a representative government. They said they were going to be different on rights for women and instead they're pursuing a pretty hard line rule and as you know um, girls are not being allowed to go to school half the population the female population of Afghanistan are effectively under house arrest because they're not allowed to leave without male escorts I mean do you feel that Taliban have let everyone down um, I do believe that the Taliban should live up to their commitments, uh, not only to the international community, but the, to their own people. And uh, amongst those commitments are the commitments on women's rights, women's access to education. Um, they would say that uh, primary education has been started for women, tertiary education is happening, albeit um, segregated, and um, they're working on secondary education. But um, obviously, uh, it doesn't quite cut it. And if uh, they want to function as a modern state, they want to be recognized as a modern state, then they're going to have to do the basics to achieve that. Uh, and I'm still hoping uh, to see progress well, on Do you sometimes front. wonder what your mother would, would have thought of that, a role model for women in the Islamic world and seeing what the fate of Afghan women right now? Um, I know what uh, my mother would have thought of that is what, what I think of it and what everybody else thinks about the situation. I think that the, 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 the new regime in Afghanistan needs to get used to the fact that it's not the 1990s and, and the world uh, has uh, moved on. And from a Pakistani perspective, um, uh, we don't see this as, as a Western issue or as uh, an issue for, you know, international human rights organizations, etc., etc. This is a uh, issue for the Islamic world, this is an, an issue for the Muslim world, this is an issue for us in Pakistan, as you mentioned. We've had a female prime minister, we've had a female foreign minister, we have a large female representation in our, in our parliament, and we have a lot of work to do on our own issues of uh, women's space and women's rights in our country. Uh, so uh, we don't, when we speak to the Afghans and, and talk about this, then we shouldn't be speaking, we're not speaking uh, on behalf of anyone else, we're speaking on behalf of the girls and women in, in Pakistan and in the region. Um, and I am hopeful with continued engagement that we'll see uh, some progress on this front. Unfortunately, what I worry about is that the economic uh, situation in Afghanistan, uh, the impending sort of economic collapse in Afghanistan, uh, if that, that sort of is kind of linked to these things. We've seen throughout history that uh, in the past, theocrat the theocratic, autocratic regimes 
particularly in times of economic strife, uh, tend to grab onto these cultural issues. And you see a, a contraction of rights rather than an expansion of rights. And I worry that it's that perhaps what we're witnessing now uh, with, uh, with their inability to live up to these expectations. Pakistan had a very tense relationship with the former government in Afghanistan of Ashraf Ghani and before him, him Hamid Karzai. Uh, but now you've got a failing state next door. Which was better, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan or now the Taliban's Islamic Emirate Look, for Pakistan? We have, uh, I mean, we've had difficult relations in the past and, uh, you know, going forward there will still be difficulties um, to say that you know we now have a failing state and had a functioning state before I think is also a not quite a fair uh, juxtaposition um, given the speed at which that state uh, collapsed and perhaps even then they didn't have uh, the sort of pres presence all over the country as uh, the Afghans have uh, today of course uh, rather than who's in power in Afghanistan, what we want is uh, for the people of Afghanistan to be benefit from a peaceful, prosperous, stable country. Foreign Minister, finally, for much of his existence, Pakistan's politics has involved division and conflict. You've had problems with your neighbours. You're a young leader. In your lifetime, is there hope of a better future and what will change things? Oh, I certainly hope so. I think that the younger generation should uh, really look forward to uh, to being able to live in peace on both sides of the border with our neighbors. Uh, and surely there's far more that unites us than divides us, far, much more, far more that uh, we have in common. Lal Bhutto Zadari, Foreign Minister of Pakistan, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you. Thank you for having me.